This Post Reports podcast is brought to you by Patreon. The COVID-19 crisis is making it clear that the creative system is broken, serving advertisers over artists. On Patreon, creators can build a more sustainable income source, and their fans get access to exclusive community and premium content through monthly memberships. If you're a creator or simply love one, check out Patreon.com now and change the way art is valued. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi, this is Ben Terrace coming from The Washington Post. Hi, Jeff. Miss Winfrey, Oprah. Hi there. How are you? It's Lisa Bonas calling for The Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Wednesday, June 10th. Today, what's happening in states that reopened early, the future of the pandemic, and a crucial step for public health. So here we are, and this pandemic feels like it's been going on forever. It's very discouraging to to realize that, according to all the experts, the epidemiologists, we are still early in this pandemic. The reason they say that is because most people have never been infected with the virus, the vast majority of people in America. And so we are susceptibles. We're so far away from herd immunity. We don't have a vaccine. We don't have a proven therapeutic. And so the main tool we have is trying to limit the spread of the virus, to contain it. I'm Joel Achenbach, and I cover science for the Washington Post's National Desk. In many places in the country, the measures they took drove down caseloads. The death rate has gone down in places like New York City, the number of deaths. The hospitals are not overburdened now the way they were in in April. So that's been good. But in many parts of the country, particularly in the South and in the West, we're still seeing rising numbers of cases. In fact, 14 states and Puerto Rico saw their highest ever seven-day average of new coronavirus cases just in recent days, since the start of June. States that we tracked at the Washington Post that showed that highest ever average were Florida, Mississippi, North and South Carolina, Tennessee, Kentucky, Arkansas, Texas, New Mexico, Arizona, Utah, California, Oregon, Alaska, and of course, Puerto Rico, where you're seeing that transmission of the virus remaining stubbornly high. The reopening of the economy is certainly going to lead to new chances for the virus to spread. We sure would like to know the answers of what's going to happen next. It does seem that the numbers are clear that there is a mixed pattern, a real mixed bag out there in terms of of the trajectory of this epidemic here in the U.S., just as it's true globally. Is it getting better? Some places, yes. Is it getting worse? Yes, in some places. And I think that it's important for everyone to understand that this is not over. This is a long, long battle. People need to take it seriously, even as we're all desperate to be past this. We want it to be over. 
Joel Achenbach is a science reporter for The Post. There's a good chance this virus will never go away. Even after we get a vaccine, we deploy it, this virus could be with us for years or even decades to come. It could be circulating among the world's population. Experts call these types of diseases endemic. You know, you think about measles or HIV or chickenpox. Those are always with us and we have to kind of live with those. And so I think increasingly experts are saying we need to think about this virus in that way. Long term, what do we do with a virus like that? How do we change our life or society? How do we live with this virus? I'm William One. I'm a health reporter for The Washington Post. So what is it about this coronavirus that makes it possible or or likely that it'll become an endemic disease versus the kind of virus that once you have a vaccine could be completely eradicated from the world? There's a few things going on. One, this is just highly transmissible. It's very contagious. That's one thing. The other is that Right now, um, most people in our country and in the world haven't been infected. It's still a very small fraction of people. And so everyone, you know, most people still remain susceptible to it. And so you're seeing in these countries that initially they succeeded in suppressing it and it's surging back there and they're having to fight off these surges. That'll very likely happen, almost certainly will happen in the United States too. And so if you just leave this virus alone, there's no reason it won't just keep burning through the rest of the world's population. No, there are other diseases that have completely disappeared from the world, right? Like things that we invented a vaccine for and then it basically became problem solved. What is the history of viruses that are more quickly eradicated and why is this one not going to turn out like those? We have only ever gotten rid of a disease using a vaccine once in the entire history of the world. Really? Only once? Once. That's smallpox. And they found a vaccine in the 1800s. And it took nearly two centuries after that to completely eradicate it from the world. And so during those two centuries, you had hundreds of millions of people dying from smallpox. And the reason it's difficult, you know, granted that was earlier times, we did not have the kind of systems we do now and the kind of public health infrastructure we do now worldwide. But the reason is it's incredibly hard. It takes time It takes international cooperation. That's really, really key. But it also takes like political will. It takes leaders deciding to put funding into it, actual effort, public health messaging. It needs the whole world kind of working in concert to try to get rid of a disease. And you're already seeing with this one, like internationally, you have disagreements, U.S. versus China, U.S. versus many countries in the world. We're we're not being very cooperative. You're also seeing the anti-vax movement kind of rearing its head already. Um, There's a lot of kind of roadblocks to, to us combating this disease. So if this is a moment where we have to shift the way that we're thinking about coronavirus, that this isn't something that's going to be over in a few months or by the end of 2020, but something that will just be a part of being alive for the next few years, potentially next few decades, how does that change like what we need to be doing to prepare for that? 
think of it like you train for a sprint very differently than you train for a marathon. Hmm. And so this is a marathon and we need to start thinking that way. So instead of thinking about how do we reopen, how do we get the economy going again in the short term, we should be thinking, how do we get the economy going long term? How do we prevent having to shut down again? You know, one of the things I hadn't thought about at all is the data that we're collecting. You know, you see these statistics all the time, Cuomo and um, everybody gets up and they talk about the statistics on death or hospitalization or uh, even confirmed cases. But those are very lagging indicators. Like it lags from the actual transmission of the virus by two to three weeks. In order to fight this long term to prevent surges, we should be getting data that gets closer to the point where the um, virus is actually transmitting. So like we can catch surges before they overwhelm our system again in the future. So so what are some of the more logistical ways that, that things are going to have to change for the long term? Yeah, this is a, a, kind of the fun part of this story is talking to people about what the future kind of may look like. And they're throwing out these ideas. These are epidemiologists, emergency planners. They're throwing out these really interesting ideas. Like, for example, you know, installing doors that don't require grasping and turning a handle or re-engineering traffic signs so you don't have to like push a crosswalk. I was taking my kids out for a walk the other day. I was looking at that crosswalk button. And I was like, huh, maybe I shouldn't be pushing this with my finger. All of a sudden, I, I find that I'm very grateful for doors where I can just like kick it open with yep. my foot or kind of use my <laughs> hip to just like press the thing. I was talking to this one guy who helps design offices. So he was saying, you know, people were always bashing the cubicle. It's this hated thing. It's mocked in these movies like Office Space. But like we may return back to the cubicle where you have people physically kind of separated and small instead of these open floor uh, office plans we have now. Some really interesting stuff like robots in meatpacking plants. You have all these super spreading events happening at meatpacking plants. Automation in those is probably going to be much more prevalent in the future. One other thing that we should start thinking about, if this virus is going to be with us long term, we have to pay much more attention to the mental health effects. This is going to be dragging on people. You're already seeing a lot of this real-time data about stress and anxiety and depression increasing drastically. And so we need to start thinking much more about like the mental health recovery as much as the economic recovery of our country. So then if it's becoming clear that that a vaccine is not going to be a silver bullet, then how does that actually play into what we're going to see in the coming months and coming years? I mean, is the vaccine going to actually be that useful? And, and how should we be thinking about the problems that it will solve? The vaccine is not going to be the silver bullet people are building it up to be, but it's going to be really crucial. And Part of the shift to long-term thinking that is needed is thinking about not just that the vaccine is going to cure everything, but how when we get a vaccine, how are you going to deploy it? Um, what are the international agreements that we need to be doing now before we have a vaccine? A lot of experts I talked to were stressing how critical that is because the first few years that we'll have a vaccine, it'll be extremely limited supply. So you can kind of look at what's happening with PPE and, and masks and, and supplies already, the kind of fight that's, that's going on for that, and just extrapolate that by so many times because the vaccine, everybody will want that. So you, you could see bidding wars, you could see hoarding going on. The countries that have the manufacturing plants may not let the, leave their borders. And how do you 
convince people to get the vaccine. Like we already have vaccines for measles and the seasonal flu. And, you know, you see public officials every year begging people to get your flu shot, get your kids the measles vaccine. So the public messaging and convincing people about the vaccine, that's going to be really critical. One epidemiologist in Minnesota was telling me, you know, he was comparing it to driving. Like, you know, you're speeding along, you see a car crash, you start driving a little slower and more cautiously, but just give it a few minutes or an hour and you're back to kind of driving the way you were. Versus like, if you look at people who have lost someone to drunk driving, it becomes a real cause in their life. It becomes something that mobilizes them. And so that may be what happens with this virus. Like we may have to wait for that point where it's it's affected so many people that everybody is mobilized on it. William One writes about health and science for The Post. Between tour cancellations, lost creative gigs, and shrinking ad revenue, the COVID-19 crisis is making it clear that the system supporting creative people is broken. Patreon offers a better way. We help creators make up lost revenue and build a more sustainable income source by offering a monthly membership to their fans. In turn, fans get access to exclusive community and premium content and the chance to become active participants in the work they love. Check out Patreon.com now and help change the way art is valued. So a super important step that the country will have to take is relying on contact tracing using a network of contact tracers, or as they're also called sometimes disease detectives or disease intervention specialists who reach out to infected individuals to figure out who else they might have exposed. And the whole name of this game is trying to break the chain of transmission. So if we know who's been exposed, then we can have them self-isolate. And every time we have somebody who isn't out and possibly infecting someone else, that really curbs the spread of the coronavirus. I'm Ben Garino. I'm a science and health reporter for The Washington Post. And I feel like we've heard a lot about contact tracing over the last couple of months and people talking about the need for the U.S. to do more contact tracing. But I'm not really sure I know how it actually works. Like, if you're a contact tracer, where do you start? How do you start finding out the answers to these questions of of who was in contact with who and who might possibly be sick? So the heart of contact tracing is the interview. Contact tracers will get information on an individual of interest or a potentially infected individual from the state or from a hospital or from a doctor's office, and then they'll reach out to that person either by phone or in the past, sometimes in person or through text or email to gather information in order to figure out who else might have come in close proximity or been exposed to this person, but also to provide some kind of support. So whether it's through, you know, helping people get meals, do things like laundry, provide masks and thermometers, it's a public health effort, but it's also a social support effort as well. 
And how do you get trained for this job? Johns Hopkins Public Health School has released an online course through the Coursera platform funded by former New York Mayor Michael Bloomberg's philanthropic arm to train contact tracers quickly. So it covers how the coronavirus is transmitted, what contact tracing is, what contact tracers do, how to do that job you know, at a basic level with examples. Joshua Sharfstein is a public health expert at Johns Hopkins. It covers ethics, the use of technology for contact tracing. And then the final section is about interviewing skills. So some of the basics about how to talk to people. And it's free to the public. Anyone can take it. Wait, so, so I could just like log into Coursera and learn how to be a contact tracer? You could. Yeah, yeah. And and I wonder, like, do they talk about what are the kinds of questions you're supposed to ask and how you're supposed to ask these questions? Because I imagine it must be weird for people to just get a phone call from someone out of the blue saying, hello, I'm from the government. I worry that you might have coronavirus and I'm going to ask you all these personal questions about everywhere you've been and every human you've been in contact with and also how you're feeling. Contact tracing can be really tough exactly because you're asking these deeply personal questions in a trying time and about bad news that people might not want to hear. Rather than get defensive yourself, a contact tracer has to be able to respond like a human being and say, I know this is scary and how can I help you in this situation? And then listen to what those concerns are and try to address them before jumping to the question of what then needs to be done. You're dealing with people that might be scared or frightened in need of a real human interaction that's positive. That's Lori Tremel Freeman. She's the CEO for NACHO. That's the National Association of County and City Health Officials. Initial contact is the basic phase of contact tracing and can be done by, by anybody who has some basic training. But then it quickly evolves into the next level of helping to provide care and wraparound services for those individuals who have to stay in their homes and connecting people to make sure they have food security in their home, that they're, they're safe in their home, that they're able to have transportation and the other things that they need to, to endure the, the isolation. Part of contact tracing training is how to do it ethically. You have to be aware that you are asking for personal information that can only be used for a public health purpose. So an example that I've seen in the Johns Hopkins contact tracing program is if you happen to find out private information about an individual's life, you're not allowed to share that with their family. If you are a contact tracer and the person on the other end of the phone is like, oh my gosh, who exposed me? You're not allowed to share that information. Uh, you have to protect the privacy of the individual that you're following up about. If you say happen to find out that an infected individual is having an affair, you cannot go back to his family and say, oh, by the way, I was following up on this person's contacts and here's some additional bad news. They take issues of privacy and identity very seriously. And there are other sensitivities involved as well. Because there could, still could be mistrust of the system or, or why this information is being collected. When we talk about immigrant communities who may be fearful of, of being watched or tracked because of their immigration status, also communities that have been harmed for long periods of time anyway, like the black and brown communities aren't 
naturally going to be as trusting anyways. We need to have their full participation in this contact tracing effort so we don't miss important parts of the population. So we're still going to need to use those common public health messaging around why it's important that folks um, do this, that their privacy is assured. Contact tracing isn't about collecting people's names and addresses and phone numbers. It's about tracking the disease. It's not about tracking the person. And that once the disease passes through and you're in and out of isolation and quarantine, there's really no need to have that information anymore about you. People won't share information if they aren't confident that it'll be used in the right way. That's definitely one reason why uh, the use of people from communities where there is coronavirus for contact tracing is highly recommended because people may be better able to relate and be able to explain things and in terms that make sense to them and uh, be able to uh, address the questions that people may have more effectively. So where has contact tracing been used before and how is it being used differently now? Contact tracing is a really old tool in the public health kit. It's been used very successfully to help eradicate smallpox in the 1950s in the U.S. when we had another large group of contact tracers. More recently, it's been used to track the spread of STDs such as HIV, syphilis, and other diseases. That's where a lot of contact tracing has been focused for the past two decades or so. What makes the coronavirus different is that it moves a lot faster from person to person than STDs and some other diseases. On the other token, the coronavirus isn't sexually transmitted as far as we know, so you aren't asking these probing questions about sexual history the way that disease intervention specialists who are trying to trace things like HIV might. So if this is something that the U.S. is going to get serious about and actually have contact tracers all over the country who are doing the work of tracking down people who've been in contact with all these people who've been infected, then how much money is it going to cost to do that? And how many people are we talking about who would need to become contact tracers? So the National Association of County and City Health Officials estimated that about $3.7 billion will be needed to fund 100,000 contact tracers. The estimates for how many contact tracers you need in a particular region vary, but hard-hit regions, the best estimates suggest you need about 30 contact tracers per 100,000 people in the population. So when we're talking about places like New York City, estimates there range up to even 10,000 contact tracers in New York City alone. There have been some efforts to build what's been described as a small army of contact tracers in New York City. They're hiring their first thousand contact tracers in May, and then they would like to see up to 6,000 by the end of June. So there is a very big push to staff up contact tracers. Obviously, the prospect of hiring anywhere near 100,000 people in the near-term future sounds in some ways almost impossible. But at the same time, it actually makes a lot of sense because you have a lot of people who are either furloughed or have lost their jobs at this point and who can do this work potentially from home. Yeah, that's a great point. There is a large population of interested people who 
want to become contact tracers when New York City put out its first call for contact tracers for those first thousand positions, more than 7,000 people applied. And there are government workers who have been furloughed who may be able to be adapted into contact tracing. The trick is how do you make sure that you bring these people on board safely and as speedily as possible because contact tracing is a delicate operation. You have to approach people ethically. You have to do so empathetically. So there is a little bit of concern that if we move too quickly, that contact tracing won't be as efficient as it could be. But at the same time, it feels like we're already so behind that the outbreak has gotten so serious and and so widespread around the country that it feels like we're kind of coming at this pretty late in the game. Contact tracing has been very successful in countries, particularly such as South Korea, Singapore, in Southern Asia at curbing the spread of the coronavirus. They've been aggressive in pursuing the way the virus has spread, particularly through some technologies. There are apps that can sense when another phone is nearby using things like Bluetooth. Public health officials will tell you that it's not a magic bullet, that contact tracing isn't going to cure us of the coronavirus, isn't going to to completely stop the pandemic, but it is a very effective tool. If contact tracing can help a lot of people protect a lot of other people from getting infected, even if it's not everyone, it can significantly reduce the reproduction rate of the virus. And that will mean many, many fewer infections over time. And that will permit the economy and the rest of society to reopen more. Even if it's not perfectly effective, it can accomplish its goal. So as states start to reopen, contact tracing will remain super important when people are out in their offices, when they are at parties or in other social events. The coronavirus, unfortunately, isn't going to go away. The World Health Organization suggested that very recently that the coronavirus might be like the flu, that it's just going to be a part of of human life. So contact tracers will remain important even as the worst part of the pandemic subsides. They are going to be needed to follow this virus for the foreseeable future. Ben Guarino writes about science for The Post. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. You can learn more about the stories in today's show at postreports.com and join the conversation online using the hashtag postreports. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. This Post Reports podcast is brought to you by Patreon. If you're a podcaster, YouTuber, musician, writer, illustrator, if you're a creative person of any kind or simply love one, now is the time to check out Patreon.com. Now is the time to join the millions of fans and creators who are changing the way art is valued.